Hello and welcome to Speaking for Him. I'm Dan Van Zalen and here is your host, Andrew Gomison. Hello, Dan. Uh, this is Andrew and I'm very glad to be with you and with our audience. We're going to do something we've only done once before in the history of the podcast. Uh-oh. And that is have a two-part episode, Bonafide. Now, we did do a Christmas Carol over four episodes, but those were kind of individual episodes, even though they were in a series. So I, <laughs> I really consider this only the second time we've had a two-part single episode, and that is because I want to be able to share this 45-minute interview in its entirety with you. This interview that I'm about to share with you is from a woman who is a pro-life attorney dealing with issues in the pro-life movement. Um, and she comes at it really honestly because she was conceived in rape. But God has raised her up to be a mighty voice for the voiceless. And so I'm excited to have this interview with Rebecca Kiesling on the show. So what we're going to do is we're going to listen to the first 20 three or so minutes of that interview for this sh- a week. And then next week we will air the remainder. But before we get started, why don't you start us off, Dan, with our quote of the day? Of course. Please understand that whenever you identify yourself as being pro-choice or whenever you make an exception for rape, what that really translates into is you being able to stand before me, look me in the eye and say to me, I think your mother should have been able to abort you. Rebecca Kiesling. And that is a pretty powerful quote, is it not, Dan? Yep. It's pretty hard. I mean, it's easy when we're disconnected from the issue to try to justify it and make excuses for why it might be permissible. But when you're literally talking to someone who is a product of rape, it's hard to make that case. And so we need to think about things in terms, as I've said many times before, and as will be, will be mentioned in this interview, the circumstances of a child's conception do not affect its humanity. Never. Um, so, and she will make a another compelling argument, which I will not give away. So, without further ado, let's listen to the first 23 or so minutes of this interview that I had with pro-life advocate Rebecca Kiesling. It is good to be with you all here on the Speaking for Him podcast. Um, today I have the privilege of interviewing uh, Rebecca Kiesling. She is an attorney who uh, specializes in pro-life issues, and she has a unique perspective from which um, she does that because she was conceived in rape but she believes, as do I, and as do I, I would hope, the majority of pro-lifers, that all life is sacred, um, regardless of the circumstances of that uh, birth. And so we're here to talk about um, some important pro-life issues, specifically because of the, um, the front and centerness of this issue in the media today, with the number of states that are doubling down, on one direction or the other on the issue of uh, the on the pro-life issue. We know that um, and specifically the state of New York made major headlines um, by doubling down on their uh, pro-abortion views by 
perhaps enacting the most barbaric uh, pro-abortion bill there has ever been, um, which I find not surprising if you realize that New York had abortion legalized three years before Roe versus Wade came down. And um, so we'll get into that topic in a greater detail in a few moments. But first, Rebecca, welcome to the show. And can you tell me a little bit of overview of your story? Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I was conceived and raised. My birth mother has been abducted at knife point by a serial rapist. And she actually went to two illegal abortions, and I was almost aborted. She backed out only because it was illegal, fear for her own safety. And she said that back then there were no pregnancy resource centers, and she wasn't offered any other help or hope, just abortion. Um, but she was pro-choice when we met and made it clear that she would have aborted me if it had been legal. And then six years later, changed her mind. Now, decades later, we are both so thankful that we were both protected. So she changed her mind as in she is now pro-life or? Yes. That is awesome to hear. Um, so you, you were conceived in rape. You survived that. Your mother didn't abort you, which is great for all of us. But then tell us about your growing up years. Um, I was adopted and raised in a Jewish family, uh, secular Jews. I went to five years of Hebrew school, now it's about mitzvah, but it was, they really lived as atheists. Um, it was actually in the beach home. And um, I learned my pro-life values from my grandmother, who was, um, well, my grandfather had wanted my aunt to be aborted. And after my grandfather died, when I was about 14 years old, my grandmother began to share the story. But it was two years earlier that my aunt's daughter aborted my grandmother's first great-grandchild. And, you know, you just have to think if she would have started sharing that story years earlier, maybe my cousin would have valued life more. So you said you learned your pro-life values from your grandmother. Um, is that how you developed a personal relationship with the Lord, and, and how did that impact your life? Um, no, my grandmother was an atheist, uh, but I first came to know Christ when I was 15. I had a friend from high school from my gymnastics team invited me here, a youth speaker, who laid out the mess of the gospel, and I knew that in my family, this was like an act of war for me to, you know, raise my hand and go to the altar call. And uh, I knew that, you know, I might as well have told them that I joined the Nazi party. <laughs> I mean, this was like the greatest betrayal. Um, even though they lived as atheists, you know, there were a couple things that Jews don't do. You know, in their mind, you don't eat pork, you know, and you don't believe in Jesus. And, uh... Yeah, so that was rough. Um, and then I felt forsaken by my church friends. After about nine months, something happened, and I ended up uh, no longer having a ride and, and on my own feeling, you know, disappointed and kind of disillusioned. And 
spent some of the most difficult years of my life learning at 18 how I was conceived, 19, meeting my birth mother, learning that I was a, that she had wanted to abort me, um, and then ended up in abusive relationships until I was beat up by a boyfriend from law school, and that's when Christ called me back to him. Well, that's a, that's a great story, and it, it is, um, I think most of us can talk about uh, times when we felt far away from the Lord and when we're grateful uh, that he never let go of us. And I'm, I, I can honestly say that that's my testimony because as a young boy, I really resented God for the way that he made me physically. I'm, I'm in a wheelchair. I've been in a wheelchair my whole life. So that was a real big, hard thing for me to deal with. Even though I grew up in a Christian home, my parents are loving um, they, they raised me to believe that God had a plan for my life. They told me that God didn't make mistakes, but I, you know, got to the point as a teenager where I just wanted to end my life. And, um, the worst part was when my baby brother, who was seemingly healthy, died suddenly at three months of age. And so I was like, well, why did God take him and leave me here? Cause I'm completely useless. That's where I was at as a 13 year old boy. But God had already saved me, and he didn't let go of me, much like your story, and he brought me back to him. And as a result, this ministry was formed, speaking for him. So I can resonate a lot with what you're saying. Um, so, uh, and, and, you know, my, my organization today, Save the One, um, it's a global pro-life organization which specializes in defending all of the so-called hard cases in the abortion debate through our personal stories. And um, I had a child with special needs. My second adopted child um, was born with a serious genetic disorder, and most of the babies who had what she had were aborted. It's called the George syndrome or um, velocardiofacial syndrome. And uh, she ended up dying at 33 days old due to medical malpractice, really. A doctor took her off oxygen when she wasn't ready to be, and it was, it was devastating. Um, but... You know, I, it was in my childhood that I began to really have a heart for children with special needs because my elementary school was the school where we had the special ed program. Everybody in, I think, in um, elementary school and high school came to my elementary school for that program. And at recess, I'd go outside and there would be other children who would bully them and mock them and it really angered me and so I would play with them and I had another friend of mine and we would spend time, we would spend our recess playing with the special ed kids and then of course, you know, I was called names for doing so And uh, but it was like that was um, you know, from a very young age I had that passion to you know, protect the innocent vulnerable you know, that, that really shaped me. Well, that that's great to hear, and that's probably what um, helped you decide to become an attorney, and I would like to get into that. But before we do, I'd like to kind of circle back to when you found out that you were um, conceived in rape. Um, you said that it was about 18. Now, were you intentionally looking for answers about your yeah. life, or did this happen by accident? Yeah, I was looking, and I got my non-identifying information, and it had a detailed description 
of my birth mother, but all it said about my biological father was that he was Caucasian and of large build. And, of course, that sounds like a police description. And I thought about it. My parents said, oh, I'm sure it's nothing. Cause I, I immediately thought was this rape. And um, my parents tried to dismiss that notion. And then I called my caseworker after a week, and I just asked her, was my mom raped? And she told me, yeah, I didn't want to tell you. And I was absolutely devastated in Paris. didn't know how to deal with it. And um, they even said things like, oh, well, women used to lie about being raped. Like, no, they didn't, you know? Um, I mean, Jane Rowe from Roe Wade lied and said she was raped so she could get an abortion. But, you know, this notion that women lie about being raped, it's the opposite. It's really that... Um, very few women report it. Very few women want to even say the R word and acknowledge that this horrible thing was done to them. It takes a lot of courage to come forward and say that this horrible thing happened. It, it does indeed. And um, so I uh, I can only imagine how devastating that would be. I'm thankful for, for my stable family life and that there haven't been any revelations like that. But I can only imagine how difficult that would be and, um, so, uh, now let's go back to, so what made you decide to go to law school and, and pursue law as a, as a career? Well, actually my adoptive father, uh, told me from about the age of 10 that I should be a lawyer because I was always trying to sort of talk him through things when I felt that he was being arbitrary or unfair. Mm. And, um, you know, looking back, I realized that I had a lot of that to be done because <laughs> he, um, yeah, he had issues. He was difficult. My parents were difficult. And um, my dad was a college professor. And he went to law school three times and dropped out and ended up becoming a professor. But he would talk to me about what the law was about, and I found it really interesting. And then he took me to see the movie The Verdict with Paul Newman. And then this movie... Paul Newman was like a hero at the end of the movie and I thought you know that's what I want to do like I want to advocate for others for people who are weak and vulnerable and, uh, and then by the time I was in high school like LA Law was really popular and I thought oh, I want to be like student day and you know I thought that would be really cool and I could you know dress nice and wear and drive a fancy car you know and uh, of course I've, I've never um I've never had any kind of convertible sports car, you know, it's like been, you know, van, minivan, you know, <laughs> like sort of thing, but uh, Yeah, convertible okay. sports cars don't really work when you have kids, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But, so, um, yeah, so, and then um, when I went into law school, I, I used to always say, oh, I would never do divorce, like I would never be a family law attorney. And it's, it's really treated as second class. I mean, in fact, when I took a family law course, it was taught in the summer by an adjunct professor, and it was a combined course uh, for two law schools. And it's so strange because it's the only time that most people will ever have contact with the legal systems in a family law setting, and yet it's not a required class. Uh, and it really is treated as second rate. But then I was beat up by this boyfriend from law school who broke my jaw. 
and um, I eventually lost my front tooth. And having gone through this experience of domestic violence uh, really gave me a heart for families in crisis. And that's when I decided that I would be a family law attorney. And it was through becoming a family law attorney that I ended up being able to be a pro-life advocate in my law practice. And I had more cases that were national news that were all family law related within a period of like uh, 18 months. And they were one of the kind cases in the country and the world. The frozen embryo case in Michigan, it was the, um, actually the first in Michigan and the third in the nation. I had, um, I argued for an unborn child uh, where her mother was severely developmentally disabled and she'd been raped in a group home. And there was a cover-up of the rape and a court order for the baby's abortion behind the family's back. And I intervened. And, and then there was also a, a girl who was 12 who had been raped by her brother. And they, I, I intervened, asked this right-to-life endorsed judge to allow me to be her guardian ad litem to argue on behalf of the unborn child. Um, because I heard the prosecutor was going to allow them to go to Tiller, the killer in Wichita, Kansas, for a late-term abortion. Um, she was seven months pregnant. And ultimately, the judge granted what the prosecutor wanted. I mean, let me argue. After the fact, it was weird. And then, you know, like to appease right to life or something. But allowed the family, in violation of Michigan law, to go out of state for this late-term abortion. And really in violation of Kansas law because um, the Kansas Attorney General called me and said, like, this is not legal in our state for this reason. Like, this is not allowed. And nobody else cared. Um, and then I also had a case where a woman was sued for not aborting for breach of contract. Um, they, she had a one-year-old child, and she received state aid, and he was living in a multi-million-dollar house. And, you know, anyhow, he sued her for breach of contract, said he gave her five hundred bucks dollars and she failed out an abortion. So he shouldn't have to pay child support. Were you largely successful in these cases? Like, you know, you mentioned like three or four cases. How did they turn out? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, on the first number of case, my client disappeared on appeal and we would have won that case in Michigan. We had a great court. Um, but she disappeared on appeal because he was starting to get visits other than like the child was three when the case was filed. And he hadn't seen the child in a couple of years, and then all of a sudden he wanted visits, and he got supervised visits, and he was about to get unsupervised. And so she took off, and it ended up on a milk carton layer and was found out of state. I mean, it was crazy. You know, I was warning her, like, don't do that, this is going to ruin everything, and she just left. So, um, yeah, and we, had a, we got a court of appeals opinion that said, well, given that there's like a bench warrant for her arrest now, it's not appropriate to rule in this case. But it said, however, we urge the legislature to act on this important issue. And then they never did. And now we have embryonic stem cell research in Michigan. They amended the state constitution through the people. I mean, it's terrible. Um, and then uh, the 12-year-old, like I said, she was allowed to go out of state. But the woman who was raped in the group home, I successfully got the, her and the baby protected. The family was able to um, raise the baby. 
and I got her moved out of that group home into a safe situation because the judge didn't care before that, before I intervened. The judges did the secret hearing, granted this abortion behind the family's back just to cover up the rape. There was no report to adult protective services. Like, everything that should have happened, none of it did. This judge didn't care. It was a pro-abortion judge. Um, and then the, the woman who was sued for not aborting, he had to pay child support. So that was good. <laughs> um, but all those gain national attention. And then now I've used my family law expertise to terminate the parental rights of rapists. So, um, and I've, I've handled cases pro bono, some high profile cases. And yeah, so God used that whole experience of domestic violence. Um, to become a family law attorney and use that to do this pro-life book that I do. And that's that's where the the organization Save the One came from? Yeah, it comes from the peril of a lost sheep um, and an unfortunate motto in the pro-life movement where they say that you save the 99 in exchange for the one. They'll say, oh, it's a burning building. Like, wouldn't you save as many as you can like, and let the one die, basically? Um, but really what happens in the burning building scenario is that uh, you have firefighters who go in for a job interview with the fire chief and they say, just so you know, I discriminate. When I go into a building, I'm, I'm not going to save them all. Like if there's a child in the midst of the fire, uh, you know, they're going to be a horrible reminder you know, they're going to be disfigured, right? It'll be a horrible reminder, and I don't want to do that to their parents, so I'm not going to save them. Like, what fire chief in the right mind would hire that firefighter? Like, they just told you everything you need to know. And these firefighters, who are the politicians, are doing just that. They're going into the pro-life movement asking for a PAC endorsement. And I'll tell you, in Michigan, White Life in Michigan tells them to hit the road. Like, they will not endorse them. You have to be 100% pro-life. You can't discriminate or they're not going to hire you, right? They're not going to give the endorsement. But unfortunately, like National Right to Life and a whole bunch of other groups, like, give them endorsements. And then when they, in fact, go into a building and they leave the one behind, like, not only do they leave the one behind, but they threaten. They say, hey, if you don't allow me to discriminate, like, I won't go in. I won't save any. And then they rally the other firefighters to go along with them and to agree that we're, we're not going to save the one and we're going to leave the one behind. And then what happens is they come out and they, in fact, leave the one behind to die. And then they get 100% approval rating by, like, National Right to Life will give them 100% approval rating. Like, Eric Cantor introduced the rape exception in the paying capable bill and they gave him 100% approval rating when he's the guy who introduced the rape exception. I mean, thankfully he didn't win his, his primary, but I mean, that's the nonsense that goes on in the pro-life movement. So um, in Michigan, we've never had a rape exception in a single law. But when I hear like the 99 for the one, I think of the parable of lost sheep because Jesus said, that, um, you know, see that you do not despise any of these little ones. And then he tells the whole parable, like, in the same paragraph, same story, same passage. He talks about how the good shepherd leaves the 99 to save the one, 
And he finishes by explaining the point, and he says, born the same way. Your Father in Heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Well, and, and neither the, should be. Absolutely. And the illustration that sticks with me is the story of the starfish. You know, the there's a story about a, a little boy walking along the beach, and he, he throws a starfish back in the water, and then he walks a little further and throws another starfish in the water, and and somebody comes up to him and says, you'll never get all of them back in the water. He's like, but I made a difference for this one. And then he throws it back in the water. Yeah. So so even if you make but a difference like, for one, I mean, we're, but, get, we're getting to the point in the movement where we're talking about potential grandparents not being here because of Roe versus Wade. And so we're not just talking about the one baby that gets aborted or whatever. We're talking about the, the any descendants that came from that child. Uh, so, I mean, if people would think about it in those terms, I think they would, they would, um, it would be scary to them how much they're actually implicating. But the, there's people who actually use that starfish story to justify, like, leaving a one time. Oh, we can't say them all. Well, like, in Michigan, whenever we do have pro-life legislation, we save them all. Like, we don't leave any behind. We still have an abortion ban on the books here in Michigan. We've never had a reconception of a single law. And, you know, you look at states where they did just pass abortion bans, and they save them all in Missouri, in Ohio, Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, Kentucky. Like, they did not discriminate. They passed heartbeat bills or outright abortion bans, and they save them all. In Georgia... They discriminated, and they left the one behind. They purposely discriminated. They added fetal abnormalities, and they added the race exception. And um, so to sit there and say, like, oh, it's like the starfish, you know, you can't save them all. Like, yeah, you can. You can. It's because of politicians who make exceptions that you can't. And who do we want to protect? Are we about protecting politicians, or are we about protecting babies? I find that very surprising that, that All right. Georgia was one that had exceptions. Well, there you have the first half of our interview with Rebecca Kiesling. As I said, the second half will be next week on the show, so you'll want to hear that conclusion, and you'll want to encourage your friends and family to listen to part one. But before we go, do you have any thoughts on what we just heard, Dan? Well, um, you know, just the whole, the whole thing is she's, she's very much, you know, into this is very much her life as, as it were, you know, and I kind of, you know, in some ways, I guess, shocked a little, a little by what she's faced, but the other, other, on the other hand, rather, now that I'm not tripping over my tongue, <laughs> on the other hand, I'm rather glad she's around. You know, and people like her to, you know, prop up the right for life, you know, because there's a lot of idiots in politics, unfortunately. <laughs> and a lot of them are, uh, whoever gives me the most money, that's what I'll go for. Well, and, and, you know, I, I think that I, I don't want to get too political here, but I think a lot of times we make blanket statements without investigating facts. That's true. And it's easy to not investigate facts, but it's never been easier to also not, to also investigate facts. I think I've said numerous times on this show, 
you know, ultrasound technology shows us that life begins far earlier than most people are willing to concede if they're just having a general argument. Yeah. So you can no longer, like perhaps in 1973, you could make an argument that you wouldn't be able to tell that a baby was alive, you know, till three, four, five months in uh, because Sometimes, the technology yeah. wasn't there. But now the technology is there to see shortly after you find out you're pregnant that, yes, it is indeed a living, breathing, moving being that that comes that, that's, that's coming to be. And you don't go to clump of tissue showers yeah, no. before a baby's born. You go to baby showers. And I think yeah. – that is the significance that needs to be emphasized. Well, with a lot of a lot of kids recently in my family, uh, I've seen a bunch of ultrasounds, and I think maybe if I'm remembering right, the first one's either at around five or six weeks or ten to twelve weeks. You know, and at that point, it's already pretty obvious. It looks like a baby. Because, I mean, every the really big head, yes, but it's a baby because <laughs> that's the only thing it could possibly be. Well, well yeah, for the most part, yeah. <laughs> so they've had a few. Um, <laughs> We've had a few natural uh, miscarriages because of problems, but yeah. Well, yes, and miscarriages do occur, but that's another thing that abortionists try to do is one of the terms for a miscarriage is spontaneous abortion. So one of, <laughs> one of the lies that's being perpetrated about the heartbeat bills is that somehow women are going to be jailed or fined for having miscarriages which is a complete inaccuracy. None of the bills stipulate this in the least. And you couldn't even legalize something As like that. As a matter of fact, I don't think any of them stipulate any punishments for the women as much as they stipulate punishments for the doctor because the women is supposed to go to the doctor for wisdom. Yes. The doctor's supposed to know their stuff and they're supposed to take an oath to first do no harm. So, Preserve life. So the primary responsibility of the criminal element of this would fall on the doctor, not on the woman. So we will get into more details next week, but until then have a great weekend and keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of speaking for him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at speakingforhim. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review.